Welcome to Mendocino Theatre Company's reading series on the radio. I'm Pamela Allen. And I'm Lori LaPaul. And tonight we bring you a little-known work written in 1914 called The Claude by Lewis Beach. Pamela, why did you choose this particular play? Well, I've been reading a lot of early 20th century plays recently. I'm always on the lookout for plays in the public domain that we can perform on the radio. I found this play, The Claude, in a book published in 1918 by the Washington Square Players. And it really surprised me. I found it quite modern in its sensibility. It's terse and tight, and it has a surprising sardonic sense of humor. I thought it was perfect. So I immediately sent it to you, Lori, to see what you thought. And I loved it, Pamela. I could see these characters running around that farmhouse. The story was visceral. The conversations were genuine. They were evocative. I think it's, as you think, a perfect play for the radio. Also, it's very real. You know, collateral damage, all the civilians on the home front. They endured every aspect of the war. They were harassed. They were hungry because soldiers from both sides stole their food and livestock. There was homelessness, military occupation, death, collateral damage. Yeah. As I read it, I was really on my seat wondering how it would end. And now, without further ado, The Claude by Lewis Beach. Please be aware that during this recording, there will be sounds of gunshot. We are in the kitchen of a farmhouse on the border between the southern and northern states. The time is 10 o'clock in the evening, September 1863. There's a staircase by the back wall that leads to a bedroom. Under the stairway is a cubbyhole with a door with a small table in front of the door. In the center of the kitchen stands a large table with two straight back chairs. The walls are roughly plastered. Outside the back door is a desolate farmyard. Thaddeus Trask, a man of 50 or 60 years of age, short, thick-set, slow in speech and movement, but healthy, sits lazily smoking his pipe in one of the kitchen chairs. After a moment, Mary Trask, a tired, emaciated woman whose years equal her husband's, enters from the yard, carrying a pail of water and a lantern. She puts the pail on the bench and hangs the lantern above it, then crosses to the stove. Ain't got wood enough for breakfast, Dad. I'm too tired to go up now. Wait till morning. Did I tell you that old man Reed saw three southern troopers pass his house this morning? I wish them soldiers would get out of the neighborhood. Whenever I see him passing, I have to steady myself against something or I'd fall. I... I couldn't hardly breathe yesterday when the Southerners came after fodder. I'd die if they spoke to me. You needn't be afraid of Northern soldiers. I hate them all, Union or Southern. I can't make head or tail to, to what all this fighting's about, and I don't care who wins, so long as they get through and, and them soldiers stop stealing our corn and potatoes. You can't hardly blame them if they're hungry, can you? 
It ain't right that they should steal from us poor folk. Mary gets the breakfast things ready and starts setting the table. We have hard enough times to make things meet now. I ain't sat down once today except for meals. When I think of the work I got to do tomorrow, I ought to been in bed hours ago. I'll help if I could, but it ain't my fault if the Lord seed fit to lay me up, so I'm always ailing. You better try and take things easy tomorrow. It's well enough to say, but them apples got to be picked and the rest of the potatoes sorted. If I could sleep at night, be all right, but with them soldiers about, I can't. Thaddeus walks over to the outside wall where he fondly takes down and handles his double-barreled shotgun. Jolly, wish I'd see a flock of birds. I'd rather go without than hear ye fire. I wish he didn't keep it loaded. You know, I ain't got time to stop and load when I see the birds. They don't wait for you, you know. Them pigs gotta be busher. Wait till I get a chance to go to sister's. I can't stand it to hear them squeal. Well, best go soon, then, because they're as fat as they ever gonna be, and there ain't no use in wasting feet on them. Ain't you most ready for bed? Go on up. Thaddeus, who has put the shotgun back on its pegs, takes a candle in one hand, his boots in the other, and moves toward the stairs. And Thad, try not to snore tonight. Hit me if I do. After Thaddeus goes up to bed, Mary fills a kettle with water and puts it on the stove. She takes a lantern from the wall and blows it out, setting it on the table in front of the cubbyhole. Mary drags herself up the stairs, pausing a moment for breath before she disappears from sight. There's a silence. Then the back door is opened a trifle. A man's hand is seen. Cautiously, the door is open wide. A northern soldier is silhouetted on the threshold. He wears a dirty uniform and has a bloody bandage tied about his head. He is wounded, sick, and exhausted. He stands at the door a moment, listening intently, then hastily crosses to the center table looking for food. Finding nothing on the table, he moves toward the cupboard. Suddenly, the galloping of horses is heard in the distance. The northerner starts and rushes to the nearest window. For a moment, the sound ceases. Then it begins again, growing gradually louder and louder. The northerner hurries out the back door. A large, powerful southern sergeant and a smaller, youthful trooper of the same army enter. At the same time, Thaddeus appears on the stairs carrying a candle. Sorry, my friend, but you were so darn slow about opening the door that we had to walk in. Has there been a northern soldier around here today? Uh, I, I ain't seen one. Have you been here all day? I, I stirred from the place. Call the rest of your family down. My wife's all there is. Uh, Mary! Mary! 
Come down right off. You better not lie to me or it'll go tough with you. I swear, I swear I ain't seen no one. Mary comes downstairs slowly. She is all a tremble. Say, Mary, you was a here. You keep still, man. I'll question her myself. You were here at the house all day? Haven't you got a tongue? Yes. Then use it. A northern soldier who came here a while ago was pretty badly wounded, wasn't he? Uh, uh, no one's been here. Come, come, woman, don't lie. He had a bad cut in his forehead, and you felt sorry for him and gave him a bite to eat. No one's been near the house today. We're not going to hurt him, woman. Uh, he's a friend of ours. We want to find him and put him in a hospital, don't we, Dick? He's sick and needs to go to bed for a while. He ain't here. What do you want to lie for? I ain't lying. I ain't seen no soldier. No one could have come without her seeing I suppose you know what'll happen to you if you are hiding a man. There ain't no one here. We've both been here all day. There couldn't no one come without our knowing it. What would they want around here anyway? We'll search the place. You ain't got no... What's that, woman? There ain't no one here, and you're keeping us from our sleep. You're asleep? This is an affair of life and death. Give us a lantern. Thaddeus moves to the table which stands in front of the cubbyhole and lights the lantern from the candle he holds in his hand. He hands the lantern to the sergeant, who notices the door to the cubbyhole. Ah, trying to hide the door, are you, by putting the table in front of it? You can't fool me. Pull the table away and let's see what's behind the door. It's a cubbyhole, and it ain't been open in years. I said to open the door. Thaddeus sets the candle down and opens the door to the cubbyhole. Anger is seen on Mary's face. Sergeant takes a long-barreled revolver from his belt and peers into the cubbyhole. He sees nothing. We're going to tear this place to pieces till we find him. You might as well just hand him over now. There ain't no one here. All right. Now we'll see. Dick, you stand guard. Come along, man. I'll have a look at the upstairs. You sit down in that chair. Don't you stir or I'll, I'll set fire to your house. You go ahead. Thaddeus and the sergeant go upstairs. Mary sinks almost lifelessly into the chair. She's the picture of fear. Suddenly, she leans forward. The back door is being opened. She opens her eyes wide and draws her breath sharply. She opens her mouth as though she would scream but makes no sound. The northerner comes slowly and cautiously through the door, having escaped the notice of Dick, who has his back to the door. Mary only stares in bewilderment at the northerner as the man, with eyes fixed appealingly on her, opens the door to the cubbyhole and crawls inside. Hey, woman? Yes? Have you got an apple handy? I'm starved. Here, what did I tell you I'd do if you moved from that chair? Oh, I didn't. I only, he wanted. It's all right, Sergeant. I asked her to get me an apple. Dick, take this lantern and search the barn. Mister, come in here with me. The sergeant takes the candle from the center table, and he and Thaddeus move toward the door leading to the room next to the kitchen. As though in a stupor, Mary starts to follow. Sit down. If I find him now, after all the trouble you've given me, you know what'll happen? 
there's likely to be two dead men and a woman instead of only the Yankees. Sergeant? What is it? There's a horse in the barn. It could be the Northerners. Maybe he drove in here with his horse and put him in here. All right, okay, we'll deal with it. <laughs> now, my good people, how did that horse get here? What horse? There's a horse in the barn with a saddle on his back. I swear he's been ridden lately. There is? You know it. Come, woman. Who drove that horse here? I don't know. I didn't hear nothing. Uh, let me go and see. No, you don't. You two have done enough to justify the horse's measures. Show us the man's hiding place. Now, if there's anybody here, he's coming the night without our knowing it. I tell you, I didn't see anybody. She didn't. Where is he? There ain't nobody in the house except us two. Did you search all the outbuildings? Yes, there's not a trace of him except the horse. He didn't have much of a start on us, and I think he was wounded. Farmer down the road said he heard hoofbeats. Man on the other side of you heard nothing, and the horse is in your barn. The sergeant slowly draws his revolver and points it at Thaddeus. There are ways of making people confess. For God's sake, don't. I, I, I know that horse looks bad, but, but as I live, I ain't heard a sound or seen anybody. I'd give that man up in a minute if he was here. Yes, I guess you would. You wouldn't want me to hand you and your wife over to our army to be shot down like dogs. Your wife knows where he's here. I'm sure I wish I did. And I'd tell you quick and get you out of here. Tain't no fun for me to have you prowling all over my house. You ain't got no right to torment me like this. Lord knows how I'll get my day's work done if I can't have my sleep. Good God, what a clod. Nothing but our own petty existence. I'll have to ask you to get us something to eat. We're famished. With relief, but showing some anger. Mary turns to the stove. She lights the fire and puts more coffee in the pot. Come, Dick. Better give our poor horses some water. They're all tired out. The man isn't here. If he were, he couldn't get away while we were in the yard. Get us a pail to give the horses some water. That ain't the horse's pail. Mister, come along. You can help. That's the drinking water pail. That's all right. The sergeant, Dick, and Thaddeus go out back. Mary needs more wood for the fire, so she follows him. When she's gone, the northerner drags himself out from the cubbyhole. Then Mary returns and sees the wounded soldier. <gasps> Ye get back. Them soldiers will see ye. Some water. Quick. Oh, it was so hot in there. Don't ye faint here. If them soldiers get ye, they'll kill me and that. Hustle and get back in the cubbyhole. <gasps> Be still or they'll hear you. How are you going to get me out of this? Get out. Why did ye come here a bringing me all this extra work and, and maybe death? I couldn't go any farther. My horse and I were both near dropping. Won't you help me? No, I won't. I don't know who you are or nothing about you except that them men want to catch you. Did you steal something from them? Oh, don't you understand? Those men belong to the Confederacy, and I'm a northerner. They've been chasing me all day. 
They want this paper. If they get it before tomorrow morning, it will mean the greatest disaster that's ever come to the Union Army. Was it ye rode by yesterday? Don't you see what you can do? Get me out of here and away from those men, and you'll have done more than any soldier could do for the country. For your country. I ain't got no country. Me and Thad only got this farm. Thad, Aylin, and I do most of the work. And- the lives of 30,000 men hang by a thread. I must save them, and you must help me. I don't know nothing about you, and I don't know what you're talking about. Only help me get away. No one ever helped me or Thad. I lift no finger in this business. Why you came here in the first place is beyond me. Sneaking round our house, spoiling our well-earned sleep. Them soldiers catch you, they'll kill me and Thad. Maybe you didn't know that. What's your life and your husband's compared to 30,000? I haven't any money or I'd give it to you. I don't want your money. What do you want? I want you to get away. I don't care what happens to you, only get out of here. I can't with the Southerners in the yard. They'll shoot me like a dog. Besides, I've got to have my horse. What kind of looking horse is it? Oh, God. If only I'd turned in at the other farm. I might have found some people with red blood. What are you going to do with that gun? Don't be afraid. It's not loaded. It's... I'd call them in if I wasn't. Go call them in. Save your poor skin and your husband's if you can. Call them in. You can't save yourself. You can't save your miserable skin. Because if they get me and don't shoot you, I will. Oh. You see? You've got to help me whether you want to or not. I ain't done nothing. I don't see why ye and them others come here threatening to shoot me. I don't want nothing. I don't want to do nothing. I just want y'all to get out of here and leave me and Thad to go to sleep. Oh, I don't know what to do. You got me in a corner where I can't move. Ah, now you've done it. They'll be in here in a minute. You can't give me up. They'll shoot you if you do. They'll shoot. What did you yell for? Answer. I knocked the dipper off the table. It scared me. Well, don't drop our breakfast. Put it on the table. We're ready. It ain't finished. You've had time to cook a dozen meals. You're as slow as a snail. What did you do all the time we were in the barn? I didn't do nothing. You lazy female. Now get a move on and give us something fit to eat. Don't try to get rid of any leftovers on us. If you do, you'll suffer for it. Don't you know anything, you brainless farm drudge? Hurry, I said. What a night. My stomach's as hollow as these people's heads. I I need a towel to clean my gut. That's one of my best towels. Can't help it. Tend to the breakfast. There's enough for you to do at any one time. I don't see how he gave us the slip. He knew we were after him and drove his horse in here and went down afoot. Clever scheme, I must admit. Uh, have you ridden far tonight, Mister? Far enough. It's 20 miles or so? Perhaps. How long have you been chasing this critter? Shut up, man. Don't you see we don't want to talk to you? Take hold and hurry, woman. My patience is at an end. There. I hope you're satisfied. Is this all we get? Come, it won't do you any good to be stingy. That's all I got. It isn't a mouthful for a chickadee. Give us some butter. There ain't none. No butter on a farm. God, the way you lie. I... Shut up. Have they got any cider? Don't ask. She and the man probably drank themselves stupid on it. I never struck such a place in my life. 
Get me another fork. How do you expect me to eat with that bent thing? Now give us some salt. Don't you know that folks eat it on eggs? Flustered Mary mistakes the pepper for the salt. I said salt, woman. S-A-L-T, salt, salt. Mary goes to the cupboard and returns to the table with the salt. Almost ready to drop, she drags herself to the back window and leans against it, watching the southerners like a hunted animal. Thaddeus sits nodding in the corner. Sergeant and Dick go on devouring the food. Sergeant pours the coffee and puts his cup to his lips. He takes one swallow, then jumping to his feet and upsetting his chair as he does so, he hurls his cup to the floor. The crash of China stirs Thaddeus. Mary shakes in terror. Have you tried to poison us, you goddamn hag? Oh! Call my coffee poison, will ye? Call me a hag? I'll learn ye. I'm a woman, and you're driving me crazy. Mary snatches a gun from the wall, points it at the sergeant, and fires. She keeps on screeching. The sergeant falls to the floor. Dick rushes for his gun. Call me a hag. Mary, Mary. I ain't a hag. I'm a woman, but you're killing me. Sergeant has been shot, and Dick falls just as he reaches for his gun. Thaddeus is in the corner with his hands over his ears. The northerner stands on the stairs. Mary continues to pull the trigger of the empty gun. Mister, go get my horse, quick! Missus, I'm ashamed of what I said. The whole country will hear of this, and you. The soldier takes her hand and presses it to his lips, then turns and hurries out of the house. Mary, still holding the gun in her hand, pushes a strand of gray hair back from her face and begins to pick up the fragments of the broken coffee cup. I'll have to drink out the tin cup now. You have been listening to Mendocino Theatre Company's reading of The Claude by Lewis Beach, featuring Pamela Allen as Mary, Phil Regan as Thad, Mark Friedrich as the Southern Sergeant, Katan Sosnovec as the Trooper, and Ken Krause as the Northern Soldier, narrated by Bob Cone. The play was directed by Lori LaPaul with sound production and design by Ken Krause. And now a special treat. Here's a rebroadcast of last year's popular reading of Trifles, written in 1916 by Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Susan Glassbell. Some 
Sometime around midnight on December 1st, 1900, John Hossick, a well-to-do 59-year-old Iowa farmer, was attacked in bed by an axe-wielding assailant as he slept. His wife became the prime suspect after neighbors testified to her long-simmering hatred of her abusive spouse. Covering the sensational case was 24-year-old Susan Glasspool, at that time the legislative reporter for the Des Moines Daily News, the largest daily in the state. The following was taken from transcripts of the trial of Mrs. Hossick. A neighbor, Mrs. Haynes, was next called to the stand. She's a small woman who looks to be suffering from some nervous ailment. In answer to the county attorney, Mr. Clammer's questions, she described a scene which occurred in her house when the defendant called one afternoon. What did the defendant say to you on the occasion you refer to, asked Mr. Clammer. She said, it would be a godsend if Mr. Hossick was gone. She also stated that she and her husband had often called at the Hossick house and that they had sometimes been called upon to talk to Mr. Hossick that she knew the Hossacks frequently quarreled, that on one occasion, Mrs. Hossack had asked her and her husband to come down to her home and bring with them several of the neighbors as she was afraid that her husband would kill the family before morning, unquote. Shortly after Mrs. Hossack was convicted and shipped off to Anamosa State Penitentiary, Ms. Glaspell, who had been publishing short stories in Harper's Monthly and American Magazine, quit journalism to devote herself full-time to fiction. She and her new husband, the writer George Cram Cook, moved east in 1913, joining the Bohemian community of artists and intellectuals who wintered in Greenwich Village and summered in Provincetown on Cape Cod. In 1915, they founded the Provincetown Players, a company that would nurture dozens of playwrights, most notably Eugene O'Neill, and for which Miss Glaspell created her one-act play, Trifles, a thinly-veiled take on the Hossack case with a decidedly feminist slant. The following year, she reworked the material into a short story, A Jury of Her Peers. In August 1916, less than three weeks after the premiere of Trifles, Margaret Hossack died at home in Indiola, Iowa, a free woman. One year after her incarceration in Anamosa, her conviction was overturned on appeal, and a second trial in 1903 ended with a hung jury. The state declined to retry her, and the murder of her husband remains officially unsolved. Mrs. Hossack's last words as she left the courtroom. Sheriff Hodson, tell my children not to weep for me. I am innocent of the horrible murder of my husband. Someday people will know I am not guilty of that terrible crime. And now, Susan Glaspell's Trifles. Imagine you are in the kitchen of the now-abandoned farmhouse of John Wright. It is a gloomy kitchen, left without having been put in order. Unwashed pans, a loaf of bread outside the bread box, a dish, towel on the table, and other signs of incompleted work. The door opens. Sheriff Peters comes in with the county attorney, Mr. Henderson, and Mr. Hale, the neighbor. They are bundled up and go at once to the warmth of the stove. They are followed by two women, the sheriff's wife and Mrs. Hale, who come in slowly and stand close together near the door. Oh, this feels good. Come up to the fire, ladies. I'm not cold. Now, Mr. Hale, 
before we move things about, you explain to Mr. Henderson just what you saw when you came in here yesterday morning. By the way, has anything been moved? Are things just as you left them yesterday? It's just the same. When it dropped below zero last night, I thought I'd better send Frank out this morning to make a fire for us. No use getting pneumonia with a big case on, but I told him not to touch anything except the stove. And you know Frank. Oh, somebody should have been left here yesterday. Oh, yesterday. When I had to send Frank to Morris Center for that man who went crazy, I want you to know I had my hands full yesterday. I knew you could get back from Omaha by today, and as long as I went over everything here myself... Well, uh, Mr. Hale, tell just what happened when you came here yesterday morning. Now, Harry and I had started to town with a load of potatoes. We came along the road from my place, and as I got here, I said, I'm going to see if I can't get John Wright to go in with me on a party telephone. I had spoke to Wright about it once before, and he put me off, saying folks talk too much anyway, and all he asked was peace and quiet. I guess you know how much he talked himself. But I thought maybe if I went to the house and talked to it before his wife, though I said to Harry that I didn't know is what his wife wanted made much difference to John after Let's all. Let's talk about that later, Mr. Hale. I do want to talk about that. But tell now just what happened when you got to the house. I didn't see or hear anything. I knocked at the door, and still it was all quiet inside. I knew they must be up. It was past 8 o'clock. So I knocked again, and I thought I heard somebody say, come in. I wasn't sure. I'm not sure yet. But I opened the door, uh, this door, and there in that rocker sat Mrs. Wright. What was she doing? She was rocking back and forth. She had her apron in her hand and was kind of pleating it. And how did she look? Well, she looked queer. How do you mean queer? Well, as if she didn't know what she was going to do next, and kind of done up. How did she seem to feel about your coming? Why, I don't think she minded one way or the other. She didn't pay much attention. I said, uh, how do, Mrs. Wright? It's cold, ain't it? And she said, is it? And went right on kind of pleating at her apron. Well, I was surprised she didn't ask me to come up to the stove or to sit down, but just sat there, not even looking at me. So I said, uh, I want to see John. And then she laughed. I guess you would call it a laugh. I thought of Harry and the team outside, so I said a little sharp, Can't I see John? No, she says kind of dull-like. Ain't he home, says I? Yes, says she, he's home. Then why can't I see him, I ask out of patience. Because he's dead, says she. Dead, says I. She just nodded her head, not getting a bit excited, but rocking back and forth. Why, where is he, says I, not knowing what to say. Well, she just pointed upstairs, like that. And I got up with the idea of going up there. I walked from there to here. And then I says, why, what did he die of? He died of a rope round his neck, says she, and just went right on pleating at her apron. Well, I went out and called Harry. I thought I might need help. Uh, well, we went upstairs, and there he was, just lying on I the bed. I think I'd like... rather have you go into that upstairs where you can point it all out. Just go on now with the rest of the story. Well, my first thought was to get that rope off. It looked, uh, yeah, but Harry, he went up to him, and he said, no, he's dead all right. And we'd better not touch anything. So we went back downstairs. She was still sitting in that same way. Has anybody been notified, I ask? No, she says, unconcerned. Well, who did this, Mrs. Wright, says Harry. He said it businesslike, and she stopped pleating at her apron. 
I don't know, she says. Well, you don't know, says Harry. No, says she. Well, weren't you sleeping in the bed with him, says Harry? Yes, says she, but I was on the inside. Somebody slipped the rope round his neck and strangled him, and you didn't wake up, says Harry. I didn't wake up, she said after him. Well, we must have looked as if we didn't see how that could be, for after a minute she said, I sleep sound. Well, Harry was going to ask her more questions, but I said maybe we ought to let her tell her story first to the coroner or the sheriff, so Harry went fast as he could to River's place where there's a telephone. And what did Mrs. Wright do when she knew that you had gone for the coroner? Well, she moved from that chair to this one over here and just sat there with her hands held together and looking down. I got a feeling that I ought to make some conversation, so I said I had come to see if John wanted to put in a telephone, and at that she started to laugh. And then she stopped and looked at me scared. I don't know, maybe it wasn't scared. I wouldn't like to say it was. Well, soon Harry got back, and then Dr. Lloyd came, and you, Mr. Peters, and so I guess that's all I know that you don't. I guess we'll go upstairs first and then out to the barn and around there. Sheriff, you're convinced that there was nothing important here? Nothing that would point to any motive? Nothing here but kitchen things. I'm going to take a look. Here's a nice mess. The women draw nearer to each other, as though the attorney had insulted them. Mrs. Hale, uh, her fruit, it did freeze. Sir? She worried about that when it turned so cold. She said that fire would go out and her jars would break. Well, can you beat the women? Held for murder and worrying about her preserves. I guess before we're through, she may have something more serious than preserves to worry about. Well, <laughs> women are used to worrying over trifles. The women exchange a look. And yet, for all their worries, what would we do without the ladies? Hmm, dirty towels. Not much of a housekeeper, would you say, ladies? There's a great deal of work to be done on a farm. To be sure, and yet uh, I know there are some Dixon County farmhouses which do not have such dirty roller towels. Those towels get dirty awful quick. Men's hands aren't always as clean as they might be. Ah, loyal to your sex, I see. But uh, you and Mrs. Wright were neighbors. I suppose you were friends, too? No, I've not seen much of her of late years. I've not been in this house. It's more than a year. And why was that? You didn't like her? I liked her all well enough. Farmers' wives have their hands full, Mr. Henderson, and, and then... Yes? It never seemed a very cheerful place. No, it's not cheerful. I shouldn't say she had the homemaking instinct. Well, I don't know as Wright had, either. You mean that they didn't get on very well? No, I don't mean anything, but I don't think a place would be any cheerfuller for John Wright's being in it. I'd like to talk more of that a little later. I want to get the lay of things upstairs now. I suppose anything Mrs. Peters does will be all right, Mr. Henderson. She was to take in some clothes for her, you know, and a few little things. We left in such a hurry yesterday. Yes, but I would like to see what you take, Mrs. Peters, and keep an eye out for anything that might be of use to us. Yes, Mr. Henderson. I'd hate to have men coming into my kitchen, snooping around and criticizing. Of course, it's no more than their duty. Duty's all right, but I guess that deputy sheriff that came out to make the fire might have got a little dirt on the towel. Wish I'd thought of that sooner. 
Seems mean to talk about her for not having things slicked up when she had to come away in such a hurry. Well, look, Mrs. Hale. She had bread set. Mrs. Hale moved slowly toward the bread box at the other side of the room. She was going to put the bread in there. Mrs. Hale picks up the loaf and then abruptly drops it, trying to return to something familiar. It's a shame about her fruit. I wonder if it's all gone. I think there's some here that's all right, Mrs. Peters. Yes, here. This is cherries, too. I declare, I believe that's the only bottle. She'll feel awful bad after all her hard work in the hot weather. I remember the afternoon I put up my cherries last summer. Mrs. Hale puts the bottle on the big kitchen table in the center of the room. With a sigh, she begins to sit in the rocking chair. But realizing what chair it is, she suddenly steps back and turns to watch it as it slowly rocks back and forth. Well, I must get some clothes for Mrs. Wright from the front room closet. You coming with me, Mrs. Hale? You could help me carry them. My, it's cold in there. John Wright was close. I think maybe that's why she kept so much to herself. She didn't even belong to the lady's aid. I suppose she felt she couldn't do her part, and then you don't enjoy things when you feel shabby. She used to wear pretty clothes and be lively when she was Minnie Foster, one of the town girls singing in the choir. But that, oh, that was 30 years ago. This all you was to take in? She said she wanted an apron. Funny thing to want, for there isn't much to get you dirty in jail, goodness knows. But I suppose just to make her feel more natural. She said they was in the top drawer in this cupboard. Yes, here. And then her little shawl that always hung behind the door. Yes, here it is. Mrs. Peters? Yes, Mrs. Hale? Do you think she did it? Oh, I don't know. Well, I don't think she did. Asking for an apron and her little shawl? Worrying about her fruit? Suddenly, the ladies hear the men walking around upstairs. Mr. Peters says it looks bad for her. Mr. Henderson is awful sarcastic in his speech, and he'll make fun of her, saying she didn't wake up. Well, I guess John Wright didn't wake when they was slipping that rope under his neck. No, it's strange. It must have been done awful crafty and still. They say it was such a funny way to kill a man rigging it all up like that. That's just what Mr. Hale said. There was a gun in the house. He says that's what he can't understand. Mr. Henderson said coming out that what was needed for the case was a motive, something to show anger or sudden feeling. Well, I don't see any signs of anger around here. She stands looking down at the table, one half of which is clean, the other half messy. It's a wipe to here. Mrs. Hale makes a move as if to finish the work, then turns and looks again at the loaf of bread outside the bread box, knowing that this is not a normal thing. Wonder how they are finding things upstairs. I hope she had it a little more red up up there. You know, it seems kind of sneaking. Locking her up in town and then coming out here and trying to get her own house to turn against her. But, Mrs. Hale, the law is the law. I suppose it is. Well, better loosen up your things, Mrs. Peters. You won't feel them when you go out. Mrs. Peters takes off her fur tippet, goes to hang it on a hook at the back of the room, stands there looking underneath the small corner table, then picks up a large sewing basket. 
She was piecing a quilt. She brings the large sewing basket and they look at the bright quilt pieces. It's log cabin pattern. Pretty, isn't it? I wonder if she was going to quilt it or just knot it. The sheriff enters, followed by Hale and the county attorney. They wonder if she was going to quilt it or just knot it. (laughs) (laughs) My Frank's fire didn't do much up there, did it? Well, let's go out to the barn and get that cleared up. I don't know as there's anything so strange. Our taking up our time with little things while we're waiting for them to get the evidence. I don't see as it's anything to laugh about. Of course, they've got awful important things on their minds. Mrs. Peters pulls up a chair and joins Mrs. Hale at the table, looking at the pieces of the quilt. Mrs. Peters, look at this square. Here, this is the one she was working on, and look at the sewing. All the rest of it has been so nice and even, and look at this. It's all over the place. Why, it looks as if she didn't know what she was about. After she has said this, they look at each other, then start to glance back at the door. After an instant, Mrs. Hale has pulled at a knot and ripped the sewing. What are you doing, Mrs. Hale? Just pulling out a stitch or two that's not sewed very good. Bad sewing always makes me fidgety. I don't think we ought to touch things. I'll just finish up this end. Mrs. Peters? Yes, Mrs. Hale? What do you suppose she was so nervous about? Oh, I don't know. I don't know if she was nervous. I sometimes so awful queer when I'm just tired. Mrs. Hale starts to say something, looks at Mrs. Peters, then goes on sewing. Well, I must get these things wrapped up. They may be through sooner than we think. I wonder where I can find a piece of paper and string for her clothes and things. In that cupboard, maybe. Have a look. Why, here's a bird cage. Did she have a bird, Mrs. Hale? Why, I don't know whether she did or not. I've not been here for so long. There was a man around last year selling canaries cheap, but I don't know if she took one. Maybe she did. She used to sing real pretty herself. Seems funny to think of a bird here. But she must have had one, or why would she have a cage? I wonder what happened to it. I suppose maybe the cat got it. No, she didn't have a cat. She's got that feeling some people have about cats being afraid of them. My cat got in her room and she was real upset and asked me to take it out. (laughs) My sister Bessie was like that. Queer, ain't it? What? Look at this cage door. It's broke. One hinge is pulled apart. Looks as if someone must have been rough with it. Why, yes. I wish if they was going to find any evidence, they'd be about it. I don't like this place. But I'm awful glad you came with me, Mrs. Hale. It would be lonesome for me sitting here alone. It would, wouldn't it? But I tell you what I do wish, Mrs. Peters. I wish I had come over sometimes when she was here. I I wish I had. But of course you were awful busy, Mrs. Hale. Your house and your children. I could have come. I stayed away because it weren't cheerful and... That's why I ought to have come. I, I've never liked this place. Maybe because it's down in a hollow and you don't see the road. I don't know what it is, but it's a lonesome place and always was. I wish I had come over to see Minnie Foster sometimes. I can see now. Well, you mustn't reproach yourself, Mrs. Hale. Somehow we just don't see how it is with other folks until something comes up. Not 
having children makes less work, but it makes a quiet house. And Riot out to work all day and no company when he did come in. Did you know John Wright, Mrs. Peters? Not to know him. I've seen him in town. They say he was a good man. Yes, good. He didn't drink. Kept his word as well as most, I guess. Paid his debts. But he was a hard man, Mrs. Peters. Just to pass the time of day with him. Like a raw wind that gets to the bone. She pauses, her eyes falling on the bird cage. I should think she would have wanted a bird. But what do you suppose went with it? I don't know, unless it got sick and died. You weren't raised round here, were you? You didn't know her? Not till they brought her yesterday. She, come to think of it, she was kind of like a bird herself. Real sweet and pretty, but kind of timid and fluttery. How she did change. There's a small silence. Then, as if struck by a happy thought and relieved to get back to everyday things, Mrs. Hale continues. Tell you what, Mrs. Peters, why don't you take the quilt in with you? It might take up her mind. Why, I think that's a real nice idea, Mrs. Hale. There couldn't possibly be any objection to it, could there? Now, just what would I take? I wonder if her patches are in here in the basket. Here's some red. I expect this has got sewing things in it. What a pretty box. Looks like something somebody would give you. Maybe her scissors are in here. When Mrs. Hale opens the sewing box, she suddenly puts her hand to her nose. Why, there's something wrapped up in this piece of silk. Why, that isn't her scissors. Oh, Mrs. Peters, it's... It's the bird. Uh, But, Mrs. Peters, look at it. Its neck. Look at its neck. It's all other side, too. Somebody wrung its neck. Their eyes meet. A look of growing comprehension of horror. Steps are heard outside. Mrs. Hale slips the box under the quilt pieces and sinks into her chair. The sheriff and county attorney enter. Well, ladies, have you decided whether she was going to quilt it or not it? We think she was going to not it. Well, that's interesting, I'm sure. A birdcage? Has the bird flown? We think the cat got it. Hmm. Is there a cat? Well, not now. They're superstitious. You know, they leave. Well, Sheriff, no sign at all of anyone having come from the outside. Their own rope. Now let's go up again and go over it piece by piece. It would have to have been someone who knew just that. The two women sit there, not looking at one another, as if peering into something and, at the same time, holding back. They are feeling their way over strange ground, as if afraid of what they are saying, but as if they cannot help saying it. She liked the bird. She was going to bury it in that pretty box. When I was a girl, my kitten, there was a boy took a hatchet, and before my eyes, and before I could get there, if they hadn't held me back, I would have hurt him. I wonder how it would seem never to have had any children around. No, Wright wouldn't like the bird. 
a, a thing that sang. She used to sing. He killed that, too. We don't know who killed the bird. I knew John Wright. It was an awful thing that was done in this house that night, Mrs. Hale. Killing a man while he slept, slipping a rope around his neck that choked the life out of him. His neck choked the life out of him. Her hand goes out and rests on the birdcage. We don't know who killed him. We don't know. If there'd been years and years of nothing, then a bird to sing to you, it would be awful, still, after the bird was still. Oh, I know what stillness is. When we homesteaded in Dakota and my first baby died after he was two years old and me with no other then. How, how soon do you suppose they'll be through looking for the evidence? I know what stillness is. The law has got to punish crime, Mrs. Hale. I wish you'd seen Minnie Foster when she wore a white dress with blue ribbons and stood up there in the choir and sang. Oh, I, I wish I'd come over here once in a while. That was a crime. That was a crime. Who's going to punish that? We mustn't take on. I might have known she needed help. I know how things can be for women. I tell you, it's queer, Mrs. Peters. We live close together and we live far apart. We all go through the same things. It's all just a different kind of the same thing. If I was you, I wouldn't tell her her fruit was gone. Tell her it ain't. Tell her it's all right. Take this in to prove it to her. She, she may never know whether it was broke or not. Mrs. Peters takes the bottle of cherries, looks about for something to wrap it in, takes a petticoat from the clothes brought from the other room, and very nervously begins winding this around the bottle. Why, it's a good thing the men couldn't hear us. Wouldn't they just laugh? Getting all stirred up over a little thing like a, a dead canary? As if that could have anything to do with... with... <laughs> Wouldn't they laugh? Maybe they would. Maybe they wouldn't. No, Peters. It's all perfectly clear, except a reason for doing it. But you know juries, when it comes to women, if there was some definite thing, something to show, something to make a story about, a thing that would connect up with this strange way of doing it. The women's eyes meet for an instant. Mr. Hale enters from the outer door. Well, I've got the team around. Pretty cold out there. I'm going to stay here a while by myself. Sheriff, you can send Frank out for me, can't you? I want to go over everything. I'm not satisfied that we can't do better. Do you want to see what Mrs. Peters is going to take in? <laughs> oh, I guess uh, they're not very dangerous things the ladies have picked out. Uh, no, Mrs. Peters doesn't need supervising. For that matter, a sheriff's wife is married to the law. Ever think of it that way, Mrs. Peters? Not just that way. <laughs> married to the law. I just want you to come in here a, a minute, George. We ought to take a look at these windows. Oh, windows. We'll be right out, Mr. Hale. Mr. Hale goes outside, and the sheriff follows the county attorney into the other room. Then Mrs. Hale rises, hands tight together, looking intensely at Mrs. Peters, whose eyes make a slow turn, finally meeting Mrs. Hale's. Mrs. Hale holds her gaze for a moment, 
then her eyes point the way to where the box is concealed. Suddenly, Mrs. Peters throws the quilt pieces back in the box and tries to put the box in the bag she is carrying. It is too big. She opens the box, starts to take the bird out, but cannot touch it. She goes to pieces, stands there, helpless. Mrs. Hale suddenly snatches the box and puts it in the pocket of her big coat. The county attorney and sheriff enter. Well, Henry, at least we found out that she was not going to quilt it. She was going to, uh, what is it you call it, ladies? We call it not it, Mr. Henderson. You have just listened to Mendocino Theatre Company's reading of Susan Glaspell's Trifles, directed by Laurie LaPaul, with Mark Friedrich as Mr. Hale, Dan Kozlov as the county attorney, Susan Mader as Mrs. Peters, Scott Menzies as Sheriff Peters, and Laura Pinu as Mrs. Hale. Sound design by Ken Krauss, and a special thanks to Windflower Townley and Alicia Bales. To find out more about the Mendocino Theatre Company or to show your support with a donation, please go to our website at mendocinotheatre.org. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willitson Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.